Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton. I'm your host of the Staying Healthy Today show. This is a show where we interview key researchers, authors, physicians. Uh, we do case studies from the clinic that I work in, in integrative medicine. And also we review the literature in integrative uh, lifestyle, um, functional medicine, uh, whatever you want to call it, to uh, as more sometimes natural approaches to illness that are referenced scientifically. So today I came across, I'm a, I do literature reviews all the time, and I came across a very interesting article called A Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial of N-Acetylcysteine in the Treatment of Cocaine Dependence. And this was by Dr. Stephen Leroux and his colleagues uh, at the Medical University of South Carolina uh, Medical School. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about today. So I have uh, Dr. Leroux on the phone here. And so welcome to the show, Dr. Leroux. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So tell me a little bit about just your educational background, how you got to where you are it's a it's a series of, of fortunate events. In fact, um, I, I earned my degree in clinical psychology uh, at Florida State, and so I'm a clinical psychologist by training, uh, which means I'm trained to do research. I'm trained to do uh, research and clinical work, and ideally to try to combine the two in some in some meaningful way. After I finished that, I was able to get a postdoctoral position at the Medical University of South Carolina, working with some basically some of the greats. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to work with Dr. Robert Malcolm, who's done numerous trials for medication development for cocaine dependence, as well as working with Dr. Peter Kalivas, who is a uh, fairly well-recognized, world-renowned researcher in understanding the basic biological mechanisms of cocaine dependence. And so they uh, they were kind enough, gracious enough to let me take the lead uh, when uh, we uncovered some of the interesting findings with N-acetylcysteine. So, have you always been in a, a addiction medicine, so to speak, or um, or have you done other things? Well, I had a very broad training as a clinical psychology student, um, but the postdoctoral training was really the training that gave me the specific and specialized training in addictions, in particular. Uh, and addictions are always relevant if you're going to be a practitioner in any area of psychology. Having a basic knowledge in that area is, is extremely helpful. And so since then, I have been involved with either research or treatment of addiction. So that's been my basic specialty for the last 13 years. When did you get into just or do you focus more on cocaine addiction versus other addictions? No, we, we focus on a whole range of addictions at our research center. Cocaine is one of them. In fact, uh, one of the exciting things about this particular uh, substance we're talking about, N-acetylcysteine, is that it, it seems to get at some of the basic biological processes that are involved in addiction in general, regardless of what substance we're talking about. So I've got experience working in research with uh, alcohol, with nicotine, um, this research with N-acetylcysteine has been applied to work with marijuana, work with uh, heroin. I'm not involved in those studies, but uh, it definitely seems to be applicable in some of those areas as well. So that's good. So if our audience people do have other kinds of addictions, this may have some relevance to them then, to N-acetylcysteine. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think what we're looking at with N-acetylcysteine is a substance that can address the, that sense of com compulsiveness, that compulsion. In fact, the N-acetylcysteine literature touches on other areas of compulsive behavior. There's some work, I think, with gambling, some work with uh, trichotillomania, where they, people will 
I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, I think trickle-trillomania for people pick at their hair. Anything where you sort of had that, I have to do it, that sort of, that, that compelling feeling of urge, acetylcysteine may be applicable. So talk about right now, if you can keep it in kind of even terms, is what roles do glu- dopamine and glutamate have in, in addiction? All right. So if when I teach people about the basics of addiction, I tell them that uh, anything that can release the neurotransmitter dopamine uh, has the potential for being uh, addictive. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's used for a lot of things. Uh, it's used for movement, it's used for attention, but it's also involved in the pleasure response, a response where something is new or novel. So if, if you're kind of feeling that happy feeling, there's a good chance that dopamine is being released in the pleasure centers of your brain. Uh, so that's the thing that sort of gets people hooked is that, is that feeling. Uh, then glutamate, is is a neurotransmitter that's involved in getting the nervous system going, getting the nervous system excited, um, kind of giving you that oomph to, to get out there and, and, and do things. Uh, so we haven't had very good luck with medications that uh, try to control or change dopamine when it comes to uh, addiction treatment. On the other hand, uh, what we find is that glutamate uh, gets out of balance in our motivational areas of the brain. And N-acetylcysteine is believed to be a substance that can help normalize the level of glutamate in those motivational areas. So basically, um, dopamine gets you hooked. Glutamate is what keeps you going back for more. That's the stuff that's out of whack and balanced out by N-acetylcysteine to some extent. Well, so would, for example, would would a benevolent thing like exercise increased dopamine? Well, you know, you hear about exercise, um, people having that, um, okay, so this is a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but you do hear about people having that runner's high, that euphoria that comes at the end of a run. And what I think is happening there is that the body is in a, a certain amount of pain having gone through all the exercise. And so it's natural opiates come into play and opiates can help us feel happy or pleasure or high. Um, they, through a series of uh, different pathways, can, can lead to the release of dopamine. So there is something to be said about the runner's high being something that people could go back for more and more and more. I, I think about exercise, though, having a lot of other benefits that can make you feel good in general in terms of probably addressing oxidative stress and in terms of things like um, being able to manage anxiety better. I don't, I don't know that exercise necessarily manages anxiety because it makes us feel euphoric, uh, but it does do um, a lot of other things to help offset, I think, negative emotion, stress, tension, you name it. We're talking to uh, Dr. Stephen LaRoe, who is a researcher at the Medical University of South Carolina, co-author of an excellent paper, A Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial of N-Acetylcysteine in the Treatment of Cocaine Dependence. So before I get to cocaine dependence, um, you know, much of my audience, uh, we deal with nutrition and food. So are there foods that in particular increase dopamine or spike dopamine more or have an effect on glutamate, that, that kind of cycle there, that get people addicted to the wrong foods? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The thing is, when we eat, food releases dopamine, period. That's why we go back and eat more. Uh, The sugar, the fat in the food is what causes the dopamine release. 
The problem is that, um, you know, back before we had processed foods and, and uh, candy bars and other things, there was only a little bit of sugar and fat, relatively speaking, and it was hard to get. We had to spend most of our days and nights trying to obtain it. So the amount of rush we would get would, would be extremely small when, say, you go out and you find uh, broccoli, for instance. When you eat broccoli, you go, oh, that, that tastes okay. That sure does taste better than dirt. I, I think I can handle eating that again. It satisfies my hunger. But take a hot fudge sundae, for example, and what you have is, is an intensely concentrated amount of sugar and fat in a single little bit of ice cream and hot fudge, and that gives you much more sugar, much more quickly, much more dopamine release. In fact, it's really interesting. There's some work out there. When you look at the brains of a person who has cocaine dependence or, or you look at several brains and, and sort of do an MRI mapping, you will see that there is a deficit in dopamine receptors in those people's brains because there's just been so much dopamine taken in that it's downregulated. So you look at the pleasure centers, you see a deficit of dopamine in the pleasure centers, deficit of dopamine receptors, I should say. But if you go and get people who are morbidly obese and who are kind of compulsive eaters, you see a similar result. The, the person who has got that, been eating a lot of sugar, a lot of fat, their brains can end up looking, in many respects, like the addicted brain. So if you say that foods can release dopamine, I would argue that pretty much any food that gives us any measure of pleasure and that means even beet or some kale, raw kale, although I, won't, I don't want to badmouth kale because a lot of people like kale, but a lot of people don't. It still tastes better and still gives us immensely more pleasure than a dick or dirt or anything else in our environment that's an inanimate, inanimate object. So is it, is it the, you talked about the load of the sugar and the fat for a second. Is it the speed of the uptake that has another kind of addictive effect? If, if dopamine is a big burst all of a sudden, for example, the whole glycemic thing, if I had just pure white sugar versus a lentil, let's say, which has some other things in it, they both give us blood sugar eventually, but one does it very rapidly and the other one does slow. Would that have a different effect on the dopamine? With, without being an expert in nutrition, I wouldn't answer that directly, but I will say this, which might answer the question. My, in my experience and my knowledge is that the, the, the more dopamine that can be delivered and the faster it can be delivered, the more addictive the substance is. So I think applying that basic principle to what you're saying, yeah, if you take, if you take a, a candy bar versus lentils, that candy bar is going to give you more and probably deliver it uh, faster than the lentil would. So we're talking about simple sugars versus complex sugars. Right, it correct. takes us longer to block, break those things down. So you're going to get simple sugars. Going to that you know the, the refined stuff that's going to probably get in your brain really quick, give you a big rush faster. And that's why we eat a Twinkie and we go yum versus when we eat a carrot. You don't you just don't have an ecstatic response to a carrot the way you would have to cheesecake because of the of the concentrated amount of sugar and the type of sugar that it is, arguably. How about, you meant you threw fat in there. Is that, I mean, because, you know, we have sugar and fat added to everything. So is fat a big component of dopamine uh, um, increase? I, I'm not absolutely positively sure. I think it is. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I have to say, my, my understanding is that it is. I'm not absolutely positive. You might want to look that up. Okay. Uh, and and double check it, but I, I that's my understanding of the literature as I read it. I am not exactly sure how fat causes a release of dopamine 
I'm not positive about that. Okay. So I would advise you, your listeners, or anybody else to do the homework and, and check. And, and I often go to, to the, well, if I'm not trying to put a shout out, but I'll go to Google Scholar because I find that Scholar gives me much more reliable kind of research findings than just oh. a, a regular old search engine. That's good. So let's let's we're we're going to get to the the analcystine and cocaine dependence in a second here. But I wanted to there was a part of the the reason that you said N-acetylcysteine might work is it it delivers a cysteine molecule or substance amino acid yes. that displaces the glutamate in the brain cells and that kind of brings it back to balance and, and reduces cravings yes. and impulsivity. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, and it's cysteine, correct? Did I say it correct? Yes. Uh, well, uh, it, it's, it's it's cysteine. You are correct. So it's called N-acetylcysteine. Right. And then and then the brain will will turn that into cysteine. That's right. So that is so is that the the theorized mechanism how N-acetylcysteine might work in just getting the glutamate into balance, so to speak. Yes, because in the in the area of the brain that's involved in in kind of a motivational bumps get going urge area. Um, called the nucleus accumbens, uh, the, you, you have dysregulation of glutamate. You have a um, glutamate function is not working the way it needs to work. So when, but in that area, you also have these cells, these glial cells. They're not nerve cells, but they're cells that are sort of surrounding nerves that have these little transporters in their, in their barriers, in their cell membranes, so that if you put cysteine in there, those little transporters will suck in the cysteine and exchange out a glutamate and put that in into the into what we call the shell or the core of, of the uh, nucleus accumbens. And so it's sort of like the cysteine gets sucked in and glutamate gets pushed out and the, the presence of that glutamate helps uh, restore glutamate function and, and hopefully, in the nucleus accumbens. And hopefully that reduces the cravings and impulsivity. Yeah, it's sort of like kind of the the analogy I like to use for that is um, one of the things that we discovered about glutamate was that there was a low amount of glutamate in the in the in the core of the nucleus accumbens. And and if you think of the analogy being sort of a toilet tank, if you have enough water in a toilet tank, it fills up, it shuts off the toilet Mm -hmm. until someone flushes again. Well, you know what happens when you don't fill up the toilet tank. The tank keeps running and running. If you have like a leak or what have you, it keeps running and running and running and running. And what what we're doing with N-acetylcysteine is basically filling up that tank so it stops running and running and running. And the running in this analogy is sort of the compulsive behavior to get more and more and more. Okay. Well, let's let's get right to the study here. You took uh, 12 to 2,400 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine and you gave uh well i'll let you tell about it you tell them tell, tell us about the study that you did um with the n-acetylcysteine so in in a typical trial of um a medication trial uh, even th- this is not even the biggest trial that's out there but these trials take a lot of work take several years to do take immense effort to get like 100 people through but what basically happens is you get there's three conditions you can either have a pill that's full of lactose powder, or you could have 2,400 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine. And we randomized people, so people didn't know what they were getting, and we didn't know what people were getting. 
And then we followed them for eight weeks, and we asked them what their craving was like, what their use was like. We measured the amount of cocaine in their system, and we followed them for eight weeks. We also gave them counseling once a week to go along with that. And uh, after that, after about three or four years of doing that, then you figure out what everybody was on, and then you measure the results across the three different conditions. And in, in a trial like this, we try to get people to come in three times a week so we can get a pretty good estimate of, of whether they're using or not, and that's a pretty standard approach. And then what you're hoping is that you see fewer days of use, lower levels of cocaine metabolites in the urine, and hopefully people actually being able to fully quit and discontinue use. Now, uh, the cocaine users at the beginning, I'm ignorant, it was used four time, three times a week, was used once a week, was used or it was just random? when they came into the study? Um, what, we have, what we have is we go through uh, a process whereby you ask them about the past 30 days of use and you measure how much they used in the past 30 days. And we also go through the standard diagnostic criteria for cocaine dependence. And so you, you have to meet the criteria for cocaine dependence. So like a casual use one time, a person's at a party or something like that, that's not going to that's not going to qualify you. But if you've got sort of a sustained pattern of use, you'll probably meet the diagnostic criteria for, for cocaine dependence, which is what everybody had to do. In the old days for cocaine studies, for a person to qualify for a study, you really you had to actually have a positive uh, urine for cocaine in order to, to enter into the study. And we relaxed that requirement for this particular study and we had a, a very solid scientific rationale for doing that. And in fact, I'm glad we did because that actually, I think, helped us really understand how N-acetylcysteine is supposed to work. So when you did this study, what was the bottom line finding? The bottom line finding is that this medication, like most other medications that have been out there for cocaine dependence, doesn't get a person to just set down cocaine and stop using. But what it did do is it did seem to be a benefit to those people who came into the study having made already made a quit attempt from cocaine. That's why it was good that we didn't require everyone to have a positive urine because some people came in and they had recently quit. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that among those people who recently quit, those people who were on N-acetylcysteine had a tendency to stay abstinent from cocaine longer. Many of them, most of them, I think, relapsed, but if you were on N-acetylcysteine, it took you a lot longer to relapse. And the, <clears throat> what we take from that is that this is a, this is a substance in which you would, you would use as a relapse prevention medication, not as, a, a, as necessarily as a quit medication. Was the 1,200 milligram dose as good as the 2,400? Did dose really matter or were they both equal? Well, I, we didn't have a big enough amount of people to statistically say that 1,200 was different from the 2,400. But if you look at the data, the trend would suggest that the higher dose had the best result. Uh, certainly, the higher dose was better than placebo, and the 1,200 looked like it was somewhere in between there. Mm -hmm. And with a small sample size, as, as small as that subsample was, there wasn't what we call 
a statistically significant difference. But if you eyeball it and look at the data, they they looked like the the, the twelve hundred group really did look like they were somewhere in between. So we're we're suspecting that it is a there is a dose dependency that a higher dose might be better, but we can't we can't say for sure until we get uh, um, a study with more data. How about side effects? Were there side effects with the NAC? So. The side effect profile for this is what you would call pretty pretty benign or pr- pretty light. Um, there are some very specific side effects that are perhaps inconvenient, but they're not they're not hazardous. So, for instance, if you take anacetylcysteine on an empty stomach, you're probably going to have a stomach ache in in a in a couple of minutes because it'll give you a little bit of uh, like it feels like you have acid reflux, and and you might have a little bit of flatulence. You might pass a little gas from time to time, and that's that's a well well understood side effect. It's been there. We know that that's a side effect all along. But as far as sort of the more um, sort of the more scary side effects that a medication could have, there aren't very many with this. I mean, N-acetylcysteine has actually been around and used medically for a very long time for uh, Tylenol overdose and for cystic fibrosis. And anytime we've seen a really, really, really bad response to uh, N-acetylcysteine, like like somebody might have a seizure these seizures would occur when somebody was at the same time already overdosing on Tylenol. Mm-hmm. So to my knowledge, I haven't heard of anybody taking N-acetylcysteine by itself and having a seizure, for instance. You gave us one of the rationales is that N-acetylcysteine might give the cysteine molecule and, and that might help with the glutamate balancing. But in the example of a paracetamol overdose or Tylenol overdose, they use it at high dose and it helps make glutathione well, the theory is it helps make glutathione, which helps detoxify you. And everybody yep. talks about detoxifying in addiction. Of course, I'm not sure what they mean, but is there a component that maybe it helps make glutathione and that helps with some detoxifying component? No idea. No idea. No idea. Okay. The, 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 the detox we're talking about in addiction is in terms of, say, alcohol, when you're coming off of alcohol, the biology of coming off of alcohol means that you're at risk for having a seizure, so you, you, you may need to be on medications that can prevent seizures. That's what you do for alcohol detox. And for, quote, detox from heroin, for instance, people will feel like they're going to die coming off of heroin, but they don't typically, they don't die from coming off of heroin like they can from alcohol. So to help them detoxify from heroin or pain pills, there are certain medications that can that can help go through that very uncomfortable process. So that's what we tend to mean with detox when it comes to things like alcohol and heroin and other opioid medications. Do you see that N-acetylcysteine could be used with some of those medicines at the same time as somebody goes through a detox and trying to get off? Can N-acetylcysteine be used with medications, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I hadn't thought about N-acetylcysteine as a means to come off of things like alcohol for the detoxification process. That being said, I might think about N-acetylcysteine as something to help as a relapse prevention agent for those things. And in fact, we are doing some studies now trying to look at whether we can combine. So for instance, one of the ideas I think we have going around here is to see somebody's coming off of, say, cigarettes, for instance, and we use a nicotine replacement for cigarettes to help people quit cigarettes and not have nicotine withdrawal. Can we use... N-acetylcysteine is an adjunct to that. 
And N-acetylcysteine has been used as an adjunct for other mental health conditions. There is a study that I believe they did in Australia looking at N-acetylcysteine as an adjunct for people who are on antipsychotic medications. And they found that people that were on N-acetylcysteine had, I think, a, um, a better profile in terms of psychiatric schizophrenic symptoms if they were on N-acetylcysteine and an antipsychotic medication. Okay. Is there any uh, last words you'd like to say about your work before we sign off? Well, we're excited about this particular research because this is a substance that is well-known, that is natural, that is relatively inexpensive. So we're excited to, for the future to see about what to expect next. Well, I will say one thing, though, that I, I, I say this to my patients. I say this to uh, people all the time. It's important to have good and accurate expectations about how these medications work. N-acetylcysteine is a medication that might give you a little bit of an edge when it comes to resisting relapse, but you still have to make the effort to quit. You still have to do the things that need to be done to give up the, the, the drug use lifestyle, to get the support you need. It's, it's what I would consider to be an add-on but it's not, it isn't by any means a recovery program in and of itself. Okay. Well, I would like to thank uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen LaRoe from the Medical University of South Carolina for his, I don't know, time, taking time to explain to us and trying to keep it in a reasonable, understandable way how N-acetylcysteine might work is in cocaine dependence and, and, and other areas. And uh, so if you'd uh, like to listen to this, obviously, if you're listening to this interview, you're already listening to it. But uh, you go to my website, stayinghealthytoday.com. Uh, you can sign up for the podcast there on iTunes or an Android phone. Or you can, if you have iTunes, uh, go right directly to there. Uh, sign up for my health letter at uh, stayinghealthytoday.com. I'll talk to you soon and you have a fabulous day. 